I am. Um, as a pastor, there's a, a verse in the Bible that hit me hard many years ago, and it's um, Moses when he's talking to the people of Israel, and he says, "Far be it." from me that I would sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And um, I just want you to know that I take very seriously um, my duty to pray for you. Um, And it's not just a duty, it's something I want to do. So for those of you um, who have just come into our church family um, I want you to know I will be praying for you. I actually have lists, and I pray for different people different days. Um, I also um, want you to know these prayer bowls. So I, I've had a little dilemma because of what to do with the prayers afterwards because they're sacred, and I just don't want to throw them in the trash. Um, so I've been collecting them and keeping them in a locked drawer. But this last week, as I collected them, I just prayed over them, and I thought, you know, I would really love to pray with people if they want me to. And so, these prayer bowls are open anytime. Like any worship song you want, you want to come bring a prayer up to the Lord, you can write it down. There's the post-it notes and the baskets and pens, and you can write it up. If you fold it up, when I gather them, I'll, I'll just put them in the bag and in the locked drawer, but if you leave them unfolded, then I'll read them and I'll pray them before the Lord too. And you can do that anonymously. You don't have to sign your name to it. And I don't study people's handwriting or anything like that. (laughs) So, um, but it could be like, Lord, help me get along with my daughter better or whatever. And I will pray that before the Lord with you, all right? I just want to let you know that. Um, But... (laughs) I think it's joy uh, for today. And um, we're continuing in our series in Matthew. And so if you turn into your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, um, you can use your phone, you can use the Bible and the pews and the baskets. I think most of them are marked with a post-it note to Matthew chapter 1. But Matthew uh, chapter 1, it's the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which on the surface is like not the most exciting read. Um, but it's very important. And it has some hidden gems. And Matthew, he is, he's a follower of Jesus Christ, and he's writing a biography of the life of Jesus. And his audience is Jewish people. And the Jews believed that God was going to send a Savior, a Messiah, from the line of their great King David. David was the most glorious king over the golden age of Israel. And God had promised this to David, and it also spoke it through several prophets throughout Israel's history, and it was documented several times in the Holy Scriptures, our Old Testament. And so they were looking for this promised Messiah. And so one of the things Matthew wants to do from the get-go is establish that Jesus, in fact, has descended from King David. There are some other things going on in this genealogy as well. Back then, you know, it's probably not a huge surprise, it was a very patriarchal society. 
And so genealogies were always tracked through the fathers. There's no women listed. But Matthew includes four women in the genealogy of Christ. And this is, it's very interesting because he does include all the women, all the mothers. He singles out just four. And so it begs the question, like, why does he single out these four mothers of all the women in Jesus' genealogy? What point is he trying to make? And if we look at their stories just briefly, we will see a pattern that frames the Christmas story in a whole new light. So I want to look at them with you. It starts, of course, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Messiah means sent one. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. So this is the first woman we get, Tamar. And the thing we need to know about Tamar is that she's Judah's daughter-in-law. Just let that sink in for a moment. Judah, the great patriarch of the Israelites, had twin boys, with his daughter-in-law. You can read the story. It's a fascinating, turbulent story in Genesis chapter 38. Um, back then, in Middle Eastern culture, and even sometimes today, women were put to death for having babies, for getting pregnant outside of marriage. And so chapter 38 of Genesis ends in this very dramatic scene with Judah saving Tamar from getting stoned to death by declaring she's righteous and that he has sinned. And he takes her into his house as his daughter has no further relations with her but protects her and provides for her and their newborn sons. And Matthew is reminding his audience that it is these people their great king has descended from. He goes on. Perez, the father of Haran, Hezron, I'm not going to pronounce all these right just so you know. So, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amnadab, and Amnadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab was known as a Canaanite prostitute. Several times the Bible is very clear that she was a prostitute. But she had heard the stories of how God delivered the Israelites from Egypt, the stories of the plagues and how they went through the Red Sea and all of this. And she determined that God must be the God of heaven and earth. Amen. She had faith. Amen. And so she helped the Israelites conquer her city of Jericho and became an honorary Israelite. And ended up marrying in. And the Bible is very clear not only about her her past, but also that she was a woman of honor and great faith. In the New Testament, in Hebrews 11 and in James uh Chapter 2, verse 25. It praises her for being a woman of great faith. And Rahab marries and gives birth to Boaz, 
Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth, also a foreign woman, was a widow, a very tragic story. And she decided to leave her nation of Moab that was enemies of the nation of Israel. They were at war with one another to provide for her mother-in-law, who was also a widow. And so she follows her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Israel, works very hard. They're like dirt poor. And no man would probably want to marry a Moabite widow. They hated the Moabites. But Boaz whose mother was Rahab? He saw past her ethnicity and saw her character, and he married her. And they became the great-grandparents of King David. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. In other words, adultery. And very scandalous adultery, where King David stole Uriah's wife Bathsheba. She became pregnant, and so then he had Uriah murdered, so he could marry her quickly and cover it up. Why would Matthew, of all the women to include in Jesus' genealogy, why would he pick those four? I mean, they're the most scandalous of all of them. Well, for one, he's setting up the stage for Mary. Mary, the unwed mother of the Son of God. And he's making the point that God chooses to do miraculous and great things through the least of all people. Amen. Including people with questionable sexual backgrounds. The genealogy of Christ proves that God invites all people into his family. It doesn't matter who you are or where you came from. Jesus had incest, prostitution, foreign immigrants, adultery, and murder in his family history. So it doesn't matter how scandalous or abusive your background is. No matter what trauma has happened to you, God can redeem it. No matter who has rejected you, God invites you. And this is great news of great joy for all people. None of the women in Jesus' genealogy had an ideal life. Do you think that Tamar, when she was a little girl, dreamed of having twin sons with her father-in-law? Or Rahab, having gone down in history as an honorable prostitute? (laughs) Bathsheba miscarried her child because of the trauma that was done to her. None of these women had the lives they dreamed of. They all suffered greatly. 
And it was not only true of them, it was true of the men in Jesus' genealogy also. None of these guys, let's just be honest, none of them married their dream girl here. In the past, they took off and led to them being thought of as disreputable and, you know, didn't want to get too close to that family. The stories of the people in Jesus' genealogy are stories of people whose ideal life had been shattered. Some of their dreams were dashed by their own sin, and some of their dreams were dashed by the sin of others. Amen. And yet God broke through their disillusionment. He redeemed their shame and their pain. And he wove something beautiful into their mess and elevated them to a place of great honor. The story of Jesus' genealogy is a story of God honoring people who have been dishonored. It's a story of God replacing broken dreams with better ones. We don't believe that God causes our pain. Uh, last Sunday, I, I mentioned how God is not a dictator, and sometimes we like that and sometimes we don't. But um, he gives us free choice. And with our free choice, humans can build up and bless, but we can also destroy and harm. And not just ourselves, but others. And there's these ripple effects that happen. So we don't believe that God causes our pain, but we do believe he can work through it and redeem it. Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. They were saints who lived in medieval Spain during the 1500s. And they wrote about this. And they wrote about the New Testament and in their summary of the New Testament, they stated basically that it is, it shows that our spiritual journey is a journey from attachment, I'm sorry, slavery to attachment to freedom to love. I'll say that again and then I'll break it down for you. Our spiritual journey is from slavery to attachment to freedom to love. And if you find this theme in the New Testament, you can easily find it in the Old Testament as well. But slavery to attachment refers to the fact that we have these ideal notions of what our life should look like. We have these dreams of, of, of who we will marry and what our kids will be like and where we will live and the kinds of jobs we'll have and the things we will accomplish. We have attachments to these ideals. But they're fantasies. And they enslave us. Because they're not real. As long as we are attached to those ideals, we will be continually disappointed and never free to love the people and life God has actually given us. And so God, although he does not cause our suffering, he sometimes works through it to strip us of those fantasies and ideals so we can be free to love and have joy in the lives we actually have. For example, um, my brother and I, we were pastor's kids, and we lived um, in two church parsonages. The second was a nice one. The first one was it was just this tiny little box, and 
I slept with 11 blankets and because I don't think there was heat in my room. And it, it just wasn't the most wonderful place. Um, and so my brother grew up and he worked very hard and he has now built, bought his dream home. It is a phenomenal home. Uh, and we love to go visit him there. But every time I'm there, he has like some battle he's waging because something, my husband's laughing now, um, something has broken and he can't find anyone to fix it or it costs a small fortune to fix it because everything in this house is custom. Everything. And some of the walls are like concrete and like it's, so it's a dream home but it's a small nightmare too. And that's how our ideas are. Even when we achieve them, they're never quite what we thought it would be. And we do this not only with things like homes and achievements. We do it with people. (laughs) You know, your ideal spouse just doesn't exist. (laughs) It's not a real person. And sometimes we see other people or we see other couples and we're like, oh, why can't my husband be like that? Or why can't my wife be like that? Or, you know, it never is that way behind the scenes. And we hold our spouses to these unrealistic ideals and it enslaves us to continual disappointment so we are not free to love our spouses for who they actually are. We do it to our children. We have ideals of how our kids should look and how they should behave and what things they should excel at. Eric and I love sports. I had a college scholarship for tennis. I thought my children would love sports. They could kill us. <laughs> and they are gifted in ways I am not. With art and music and comedy and, and robotics. Um, and, it, and I can even either choose as a mother to try to keep forcing them into this mold of a preconceived idea that I had or choose to be free of that and love them for who they actually are. Amen. <laughs> I'm trying to choose it every day. Um, let's talk about our parents for a moment. As young kids, we, we tend to have an idealistic, like idolize our parents, but at some point, usually beginning in adolescence, we um, realize our parents are not all that. And, um, and that can even carry into our adulthood. And sometimes we get later in life and we realize that we are carrying insecurities and scars that stem back to our childhood. And it's good and healthy to realize those things and work through those things. But when we get to that point in our lives, we have a choice to either be bitter because we're holding our parents to some ideal standard of this is who they should have been and this is what they should have done for me. and Or we can let go of the ideal and be free to love them for who they truly are. Just beautifully broken people. Because that's how God loves us. 
as beautifully broken people. God loves us so completely and yet never, never tries to deny the fact that we're sinful. He holds both of those two things together and he can be honest about our shortcomings and faults and sin and yet still see our worth and love us. And that's how we need to be with the people he puts in our lives. I'll hit one more. Our bodies. In our nation, there is an epidemic of people who hate their own bodies. And it manifests in many different forms and to different degrees of severity, whether it's people... um, Obsessed with losing weight or getting cosmetic procedures to try to delay aging or, or even surgically altering themselves. It's the same root problem of hating our own bodies because we're enslaved to some ideal of what our bodies should be like. God will often use suffering to strip away those false ideals and fantasies that we have. So we can be set free to love the people and the lives we actually do have. John Mark Comer is a pastor in Seattle and um, he was preaching about this, about how when God strips away our ideals, and it usually happens through some form of suffering, um, he says this, he usually doesn't make sense until the other side of life, if ever. And our responsibility is not to do anything, but rather to welcome God's work with joy and trust, instead of resist it with anger and resentment. To welcome God's work with joy and trust instead of resist it with anger and resentment. Before our church planning adventure in Mason, um, every ministry and church I had ever been a part of grew. Uh, the first church grew from like 200 to 406 years and from there I went to a mega church. And so um, when I was sent to plant a church in Mason, All the denominational leaders just expected it would grow. I expected it would grow big because that was my track record. And it did not. It just stubbornly refused to grow. And there were Sundays I would look out and see the 15 to 20 people seated there and I felt like a failure. And I'm, I'm not really a person who lives with regrets. I'm a person who tries to learn from my mistakes. But if I have a regret from that season of my life, it was the energy I wasted being disappointed in the people who weren't there instead of enjoying the people who were. ideal expectations enslave us. And when our ideals get stripped away, we can either fight it and stay enslaved to disappointment 
in bitterness, or we can let ourselves be set free to love. The story of Jesus' genealogy is a story of people whose ideal life got blown up, like painfully blown up. And yet, they trusted God and found that he brought them greater joy and greater honor than they could have ever imagined. So when your fantasy and your ideal gets blown up, how do you respond? Do you get bitter? Do you get angry? Or do you clothe yourself with joy? I love that line from the video at the beginning of the service, that joy is not a fleeting feeling. Rather, it's something we clothe ourselves in. We put on. We choose to see our world through the lens of joy. Do you clothe yourself with joy and trust in God? so that you can fully love the people and the life that he has given you. I want to end by reading the Serenity Prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, many of you have heard the first stanza. It's very popular. But the full prayer is equally profound. So I want to read it to you. God, give us the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed. Courage to change the things that should be changed. And the wisdom to distinguish one from the other. Living one day at a time. Enjoying one moment at a time. Accepting hardship as the pathway to peace. Taking, as Jesus did, the sinful world as it is, not as as I would have it to be. Trusting that you, God, will make all things right. If I surrender to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life, and supremely happy with you forever in the next life. Lord, help us to desire what you desire. Help us to let go of those ideals we have, of the things that we think will make us happy. And help us step forward in freedom. And choose to clothe ourselves with joy and see the goodness of you in every aspect of our lives. To see your goodness in the brokenness, Lord. And help us to trust that you can weave beauty out of the brokenness. And there is greater joy and honor to be found than we can even imagine. Help us to trust in you for the long haul, not just the short term. Help us to see your blessings, Lord. Amen. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
We have one more song to sing. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. And um, if you want, you don't have to, but if you want, I'd invite you to respond by just writing down some of the goodness of God in your life right now. And you can write that for yourself. You can bring it up to a prayer bowl. But just acknowledging and giving thanks to God for the goodness of Him in your life, no matter what is going on on the surface, but recognizing His goodness in your life now.